Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Rachel Al Miller. She is a lecturer in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She also teaches for the Institute for the Study of Sexuality and Gender at Columbia University. We are here today to discuss her edited volume, A Touch of Doubt on Haptic Skepticism published by De Gruyter in 2021. Rachel, I'm grateful to be in dialogue with you. I could not be more appreciative. Ari, thank you so much for having me here and for having this conversation with me today. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the book with you. To begin, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up and study? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired you to become an academic? Yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, in a Pennsylvania Dutch family, and I had an evangelical upbringing in a fundamentalist household. I was um, a worship leader. I played electric guitar with a Christian rock band, and we performed in front of a couple hundred of kids uh, a couple times a week. So that was a big part of my upbringing, and that experience of growing up in purity culture in the 90s and early 2000s informs a lot of my work about touch, um, especially the, the imperative not to touch, which was such a big part of my teenage years. Um, eventually I left that evangelical tradition because of its restrictive views of gender and sexuality. Even though I have to say, I really loved the community and I really loved growing up um, with that experience. And I still think about it really fondly, but um, I felt like in order to really to come in touch with myself, that I had to leave that kind of theological framework that was so restrictive about touch and gender, and especially the way it perceived feminine presenting bodies. So I moved to Nashville for a while where I was a singer songwriter and a waitress. And eventually, eventually I ended up going to college, went to community college for a little bit, which was maybe the best academic experience of my life. And then I ended up completing my undergraduate degree at Goucher College, which is a super liberal, hippie, very experimental college um, in the forest outside of Baltimore. And that's where I discovered philosophy for the first time. And it was like also my first experiences with sensuality, with relationships. It was like a really a time of exploration. And it was really an exciting time for me. And um, yeah, one of the major, one of the most popular majors was modern dance. And somehow there's like a lot of projects that would bring art and dance in relationship to philosophy. And this made me think about philosophy as something that was lived, embodied, dance, sung, something that was like sensuous in itself. And it's part of what drew me to philosophy was the idea of philosophy as an artistic practice, as a sensuous practice, and as like a relational experience. And so I ended up doing my PhD 
in continental philosophy at Villanova University. This was also, um, it was such a wonderful program, but I quickly discovered that academic philosophy was not exactly what I imagined, that um, it was much more restrained and traditional than some of the more experimental figures that drew me into philosophy. So it was interesting because at first when I left evangelicalism, I thought of my kind of secular experience or philosophy and religion as two things that were so opposed, but I, I began to see them as just different kinds of sensuality and also containing their own kinds of restrictions and narrowness in terms of thinking about bodies and how bodies are in touch. And, and a kind of dogmatism regarding their own, their own belief systems. So that became a really a major theme with this book. In light of what you just alluded to, um, how did your encounters with philosophy in an academic context as a later graduate student complement or contradict religious beliefs that you held or were struggling with? Can you comment on the relationship between philosophy and Christianity in your lived experience? Where do they complement each other? Where did they differ? To what degree does a Christian background continue to inform your thinking? Yeah, that's so interesting. I um, I realized that in cutting yourself off for, from a certain tradition, you don't actually leave it behind, but it continues to stay with you and you keep returning to it um, just with the new relationship. And a lot of this, the things I loved about Christian fundamentalism was like the close reading of like the Bible and these deeper questions that we could ask about like existence. And that was so stimulating to me as, as a child. And um, philosophy was a way to continue to do that, but, in, um, but to ask those same questions within so many different kinds of frameworks. So I found that it's, it's still important to me today as a philosopher, not to become in, too indebted to a single philosopher or a single school of thought, I think for that reason, because I really want that creative freedom to draw on different traditions and to like work within the contradictions or cracks of those traditions. What inspired you to write this book and edit this book? What message do you hope that the essays, articles, and chapters inside it will convey to readers? Hi, my first research position after my PhD was at the Maimonides Center for Advanced Studies and Skepticism at Hamburg University. And I was so like tickled by this idea of a school for advanced studies and skepticism because skepticism is the idea that we really can't know. And so this idea that there's a school for advanced skeptics, I thought that was like really delightful. And so I um, had a research position there and I was also working in Ljubljana with a school of Lacanians where I trained, I trained in the school of um, the Ljubljana School for Psychoanalysis, which studies, um, which studies the relationship between psychoanalysis and political philosophy. And we had a project on touch that was very much engaged in the phenomenological tradition. And so I came up with this project on haptic skepticism. And to me, I'm, maybe this goes back to my religious upbringing, I was interested in the way that belief 
is encoded on us like before before we have any understanding of it through our haptic experience and our touch relations how we begin to learn the values of our community and even develop a relationship to ourselves through the ways we're touched and the way we're taught to move through space and come into contact with different spaces and so i call this haptic dogmatism uh, the the way that belief is unconscious, unconsciously just touched upon our skin and our, our skin retains that, um, retains that belief on the level of sensation. So for me, haptic skepticism was experiences of touch that disrupt our belief, even, even um, positions that we may have not have known that we held until that moment of disruption that makes them visible. So I was thinking about like experiences like queer sexual experiences that in my own life, like disrupted not only my sense of who I am in terms of my sexuality or gender, but it really disrupted my whole metaphysical theological belief system because it, it wasn't compatible. Those experiences of pleasure or love weren't compatible with the way I was in the world, the way I grasped the world through a whole system of beliefs. So that, that tiny experience of touch um, really called into question everything I knew about who I was and how I was in the world. So the volume really tries to think about these like tiny experiences of touch and their disruption on a lot of different levels coming from a lot of different kinds of disciplines. What do you mean by the term an adjective haptic? Can you explain the meaning of this ab adjective to listeners who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, that's a really important question. We began this project in Germany where the word haptic I think is more common, um, but haptic means like relating to touch or contact. And in some ways we mean it in a very uh, literal sense of say experiences of sexuality, for example, experiences the relationship between a caregiver and a child, but it can also be, um, I guess I have a very expansive notion of haptic, also different kinds of sensation on our skin. Like right now, I feel like the wind touching my hand that's coming in through the window, I would describe that as a haptic sensation. So experiences of pleasure and pain. Um, there are external touches on the skin. I think there are also notions of internal touches like being the sensation of being full or empty, being hungry. But I also have like a, a broader sense of an ontological understanding of haptic experience where I would claim that we're always in touch. So we're always in touch with our environment. Our environment is always touching us back. So I, I often use the term being in touch as a foundational ontological position that we're always being touched and touching. It's a constant state of being. Which philosophers have made the greatest contemporary contributions to thinking about touch? Oh, that's a nice question. Um, within continental philosophy, which is my main, one of my main frameworks, um, Husserl talks a lot about the reciprocity of touch, of touching and being touched back. And that's a really a foundational concept that influenced a lot of philosophy of touch in the 20th century. There's also philosophers like Merleau-Ponty that talk about 
um, touch on the level of world touch of the world flesh. Um, this has the more like ontological significance of touch. There's philosophers like, like Derrida and Lacan and psychoanalysis that, um, that try to really think about the relationship between language and touching. I think for me, I would point to, for example, somebody like Audre Lorde as somebody who's really present within my own thinking about touch. And I guess she's not the first person that might come to mind specifically as a philosopher of touch, but her notion of the erotic really inspires my understanding of touching as not something that just takes place between yourself and somebody else or yourself in a community, but as something that has to do with our, our own self-relationship. And I'm, I'm really interested in how experiences of say violent touch or violating touch or even of neglect can alienate us from our own erotic relationship to ourself. And part of this project is really arguing and arguing for and envisioning a world where we have access to more kinds of touch relationships that can allow us to flourish. And I think to me, this is essentially about one's relationship to themselves. If there's an environment for exciting and transformative experiences of touch that it allows for a deeper and richer relationship to oneself. What about ancient and medieval philosophers? Are there any philosophers or philosophical works from pre-modern contexts, from ancient and medieval contexts that are particularly helpful to think about touch? Oh, absolutely. And for our volume, there's really a range of thinkers beginning with antiquity, going through medieval, um, medieval philosophy to modern philosophy with German idealism and then more contemporary examples. But um, one person who I draw on a lot in my own thinking, um, and I, I discuss him in this volume too, is Augustine. And we, we probably don't think of Augustine as a philosophy of touch, but um, as a philosopher of touch, but I'm really intrigued by his account of, of infancy and the process of growing from an infant to becoming a social being and the role of touch in that process. So he talks about, well, in, infancy means to be without language and then to be a social being means to think and to act according to language and the kind of conventions that language secures. And he talks about two different kinds of touch that enforce language upon us. One is the gentle touch and one is the, the violent touch. So the first touch is the touch of his mother. And he talks about being breastfed in this moment of that gentle touch which is an external touch of the, um, the, the two skins touching the lips and the nipple, but it's also the internal touch, the sensation of being filled up with milk. And he talks about these two kinds of touch. And he says, this was his first experience of, of the word of God was through this experience. And to me, I'm really, I'm really intrigued about how we first learn language through touch before we even have the symbolic capacity to grasp linguistic or symbolic structures. So, um, so we first learn we first learn about conventions through these gentle 
experiences of touch that are on the level of unconsciousness. Then he talks about the second kind of touch was when he would go to school, he would go to grammar school and he wasn't a very good student and he didn't really like practicing his, his like Latin or Greek. So the schoolmasters would, would hit him. He talks about the whip of the schoolmaster as a second kind of touch that he was forced to learn language. And for him, he kind of mourns something that's taken away from us when language is really literally impressed upon our skin. And that for him, he was like deprived of a kind of childlike play through the, through the enforcement of needing to conform to society through the relationship of touch and language. So to me, everything like that Augustine writes anticipates so much to come much later in the 20th century. And he anticipates so much that happens within 20th century within the relationship between like language and um, the psychoanalysis of touch. What is your book's contribution to psychoanalysis? I would um, respond along these same lines as a continuation of that um, with, I make this argument that we learn language through touch before, before we can have access to it on a conscious level. And to me, the significance of this is that a lot of our belief systems are already encoded on our body before we can have, before we become aware of them, long before we become aware of them. Another thinker who's really significant to me is um, Derrida and especially Derrida's relationship to his own upbringing in Judaism. And he, his autobiography, Circumfessions is a kind of satire, but also just an homage to Augustine's, um, Augustine's confessions. And he talks about how his mother, when he was an infant and he had a fever, would pray over him and cry as she was praying for his life to be saved. And she would say the word God. And he couldn't know what that meant, but it was that touch of her praying and using that word again that encoded the word in his memory through the experience of being touched. So that later when he became an adult and decided not to circumcise his own sons or, um, he also became a famous like atheist philosopher that he couldn't really leave that word God behind because it was something that was present within his sensation and within that material experience. So I think this book really explores how belief, how belief in language is something that we experience through touch and that in order for that to be disrupted, it has to happen also on the level of embodiment. What is your book's contribution to epistemology? The project began as um, a project that we primarily saw haptic skepticism as um, a project in epistemology and in skepticism, which might be seen as the shadow side of epistemology. Epistemology asks, what can we know about like ourselves and the world? And skepticism puts a limit on that or it questions how much we can know. And so our project, we began asking the question, what can we know through touch as a tool, as an epistemological tool, and what can we know about touch as an object of epistemology? And we were looking at that through different uh, skeptical frameworks, thinking, well, what can't we know? What, um, what does, how does touch disrupt our, our different systems of knowledge on a continual basis? How does touch surprise us and humble us uh, time and again? And 
yeah, it began as a project in epistemology, but then I quickly realized or that what was at stake was actually on the level of ethics, that in these moments when touching disrupts what we think we knew about something, and we realize that we don't, we're still responsible in those moments for how we touched, for how we engaged the other, even without fully knowing how. To me, um, it's fascinating listening to you speak in the sense that um, for me as a Jew and devoted Jew, I was thinking about your book in recent days while experiencing Yom Kippur, the, mm-hmm. the fasting, the, the day of atonement. And I was thinking about your book in light of many aspects of Jewish religious tradition. Um, for example, the Passover Seder, circumcision, holidays like Sukkot, which is coming up where we dwell in a hut, a makeshift hut, the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. In what ways can your book and its insights help someone like me understand Jewish rituals involving touch in new ways? Yeah, I think this is, well, this project about haptic skepticism took place in uh, at the Maimonides Center in this beautiful academic Jewish community, but also a larger Jewish community in Hamburg that we were very close to at the Institute. So I, for me, it was a really like an honor to be able to pursue this thinking in that kind of community alongside of like researchers like Bill Rebiger, who is one of the authors of this volume. And Bill is a specialist in, um, in Jewish magic in that tradition. And his chapter focuses on, is on um, um, spells that, that focus on on touch. So it would be a set of instructions. If you wanted to cast a love spell, for example, or a revenge spell, there would be a set of instructions about how to touch an object, or there's even one that it takes place with you need a, a finger bone to to um, conduct this this ritual. And I think what's really interesting about his chapters, he talks about how the the very many rules, whether it's in Jewish magic or just rituals, that there's so many rules about how to touch and how not to touch. And that it's so complicated that you never know if you've done it right, exactly. And so he said the the beauty of it is that you have to do it again and again. So you never know if a spell took place. The only way you can be sure is to try to do it again and try to do it again. And there's something about that, the rules that might feel to some people like limiting or restrictive, but actually there's a kind of play in it as he sees it, that it's that uncertainty, the ritual of needing to do it again and again, that we're actually like, it's the practice of of perfecting our touch or refining our touch. Um, I thought that was a really, a a playful and very beautiful and insightful chapter. Um, I've also been, revisiting Genesis with my students. I'm teaching a a group of freshman students and we just read Genesis again. And I say again, for me, when I read with the students, I love to return to the text as if it's really the first time with a kind of naivety. And we were returning to that, yeah, the story of the fall and how Eve like adds this when she's talking to the serpent, she's like, oh, and God also said not to even touch it, not to even touch the fruit. And um, it seems like, probably God didn't actually say that. And 
we explore that moment like where Eve does touch the fruit and eat it. And part of the question is like, what knowledge does she gain in that moment? What is the knowledge of good and evil? And one of the interpretations that I've taken, which is kind of a more feminist reading is that in that moment she becomes, she gains knowledge of her own body and the fact that it's good. And we know it's good because God already declared that it was good. And I think that's a, a moment that I've been returning to thinking about Jewish tradition and touch and self-touch and self-knowledge. And that question of what happens in that moment of, of self-touch and self-knowledge and why is it potentially threatening to say authority or to, um, to our communities? I think that's where I would turn to Audre Lorde again and that, that notion of, of the erotic as something that's um, kind of a kind of knowledge or a self-relationship that takes place even in the absence of knowing exactly who we are or what it is we desire. It can be in a moment of, of confusion about who we are, but something takes place that's, um, yeah, yeah, potentially disruptive and transformative, I think. This, the question, there's too much to say about it. Um, on Yom Kippur, I was thinking about your book in light of a certain poem that is read, liturgical poem that is read in a traditional Jewish prayer book. Um, in, in English translation, it says the following, behold, we are like clay in the hands of the crafter who lengthens and shortens it at will. Thus we are in your hands, merciful creator. Remember the covenant and do not listen to the evil inclination. In Hebrew, it says, ki how might the essays in your book help us to understand this song and in particular the metaphor we are like clay Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's so beautiful. And I'm so um, honored that you thought about that in relationship to our book too. I, I guess I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm also curious about your interpretation of it a little bit too, but um, I've been thinking about that in relationship to this Genesis story too, and thinking about the fall as a kind of cut that occurs, a cut with the unity, an experience of unity with God, with um with our environment, but it's a necessary cut for self-knowledge and relationality. In order to have a relationship, you need the cut to have two. And uh, my students and I were talking about that in relationship to circumcision and a kind of a cut that also binds us to our community, um, binds one to his community and to God, but it's only through a cut. So I was thinking about that relationship between the cut, but also the unity of materiality as um, belonging to the clay. And I guess, I guess one thing I've been imagining is, especially in the story of Genesis, like does, um, is God something that we want to imagine as immaterial or is God also um, a part of that materiality? Can we find God within the clay itself? And um, when God is cut off from, in a certain way from Adam and even, even, um, humanity in the fall, is that a kind of self-cut within materiality itself? Or is it a division between something immaterial and material? So I'm kind of thinking about that kind of self-touch through. What 
does your book contribute to our understanding of aesthetics? Well, we have some chapters that are explicitly written by art historians. Um, our the final chapter is this beautiful chapter called The Weak Relations of Touch and Sight Through the Passage of Time. And it's by Adi Loria Hayan. Um, He's a wonderful art historian, and she writes about um, Robert Morris, who was uh, an artist in the 20th century who drew a lot on, on schools of skepticism. And he played a lot with the senses, where he would pull apart our experiences of senses, like the experience of seeing and hearing, and pull them apart for a second so that you could kind of experience the disjunction between them in a way where they usually like bleed together. And she talks about one of his series of called Blind Time, where he blindfolds himself and um, and touches with his fingerprints as if like playing a piano on paper. And there was something about that experience where uh, taking away sight, where it made him open to something unexpected. And there's a theme that goes through through the book about the relationship between seeing and touching and the difference. And um, Robert Fowler also makes this argument in his book and in, in his chapter that with seeing, we kind of anticipate what we want it to be. Like if there's, we can imagine what's on the other side of sight, for example, of an object that we see. Um, with, with seeing, we can always complete the picture with our imagination. Whereas a lot of the, a lot of the authors make the argument that with touching, there's always an element of surprise that's something that is out of our control and touching. Touching always touches us back in a way we can't fully anticipate. And Robert Morris in taking away his vision while he's painting with his fingertips tries to capture this idea that with touch, there's an element of sensation that's out of our control, even outside of our artistic control. But on, an, on another level, I, I approach aesthetics as the experience, the phenomenological experience of sensation and trying to just describe a sensation, which um, brings phenomenology back to its roots in ancient skepticism, especially a, a kind of ancient skepticism, a school of that thinking known as Pyrrhonism. And Pyrrhonism would try to give a description of a, of a belief, a set of beliefs or an experience and they they notice that when we try to ex try to ex describe uh, say an experience or a belief, we often come into contact with a kind of contradiction or a paradox, and then they give a description of the emotional and sensational experience of that paradox. And to me, like that's that's the moment that I'm really interested in how attending to sensation leads us to become more sensitive to the, the sensation of paradoxes within our sensation. And that's the moment that I would call haptic skepticism to this moment when our own sensations are at odds with themselves and kind of just struggling with the impossibility or, of, or the, the experiences of doubt and confusion and disorientation. How do we deal with that when something that is painful is also pleasurable at the same time, for example? Um, so it's kind of those moments that the volume is interested in the level of aesthetics. How does your book help us understand trauma? What is the relationship between touch and trauma? Yeah, I think this is 
really important for me and what's at the heart of the project. There are different kinds of trauma, of course, and one trauma on the level of touch could be the experience of violation and of violence. Some experiences of trauma could be a single event. Uh, there are other experiences of trauma that might just be growing up in an environment that is threatened by your own body, that is threatened by your own existence. It could be, there's a trauma of experiencing a lot of micro, um, micro experiences of harassment that, that in themselves, they might not seem like a big deal, but they add up to, um, they add up to um, alienating us from our own environments and thus our own relationship to ourself is what I claim. And so part of this, this project is trying to disrupt environments of touching that have normalized harassment and assault as something that's, um, yeah, have normalized it, period. Um, so we're, we're, we're interested in disrupting those kind, that sense of having the right to touch as I want to, and um, the rightness of touch and the sense of uh, the right to touch at the same time. I've also worked on a few projects with some of the um, some of the other collaborators of this volume. We've been on a project that was funded by the EU Department of Justice, and it was a project about preventing secondary victimization of children who have been abused or violated or neglected. And we were interested in analyzing how children who have been traumatized represent that trauma. And I would say it's not just children, but it's anyone how, um, in order for a testimony to be considered cogent in order to pass as evidence in court, it has to be consistent with itself. But I, we argue that the there are certain kinds of experiences of touch, say being violated by a parent, for example, that is fundamentally a, a contradiction. It's a contradiction that the person who cares for you could also is also the one who's hurting you. And that we shouldn't expect the language that represents that to be, um, to be measured in the same way that we do formal logic, thinking about something that's like cogent and valid. Um, so, so we're trying to bring some attention to that on a really practical application, educating, um, educating detectives, forensic detectives and policemen and, um, and different kinds of social workers who work with children and think about how we can apply that, apply this kind of knowledge and insight into the level of the court system. How did you select and meet the contributors to this book? What is your relationship to them? Yeah, um, when I was pursuing my PhD at Villanova, I did a Fulbright in Slovenia to study with a few philosophers there. There's, it's, there's actually a huge scene of psychoanalysis in, in Slovenia and especially in Ljubljana. Um, some famous figures are Slavoj Žižak, Alenka Zupančić, Mladen Dolar. And um, so I went and I studied with them for a year in the school of the Ljubljana School of Psychoanalysis, which focuses on Freud, Lacan, and Marx, and, and Hegel, a philosopher from the 19th century, who also writes a bit about touch because one of his main concepts is 
begriff, which means to grasp. And he's really interested in how we grasp ourselves as self. So, so I moved to Ljubljana and I, I really found the kind of creative approach to philosophy that I imagined there. Uh, like my, um, one of the contributor, contributors to this volume, Bara Polens, is a nationally recognized and awarded director and she's received some of the highest awards for in the EU for her performance art. And she's an incredibly rigorous philosopher. And um, so I work with them in Slovenia. A lot of these, a lot of the contributors are from that school. It's, a, it's half from, half of the group are these Lacanian Slovenians and half of the group are people who are more oriented in Jewish studies. And it's, it's a very, very unlikely collaboration. I think they would never have come together otherwise, but it was so, it was so fruitful to see those two communities come together and, and work together. In your perspective, why is touch understudied and underappreciated? I think in some ways touch is really at the forefront of so many fields right now. It's um, at the forefront of, of developing technology of thinking about um, haptic technology and how important that is from everything from like cell phones to now like elevators are more activated through touch and a pulse rather than through sight as much or like um, there's just a lot of, I think it's one of the things that's at the forefront of developing technology because we realize that in order to communicate with technology, it's not enough for us just to touch it, that it has to touch us back because that's such an important part of how human beings engage is that a touch that's explicitly reciprocal in that way. And um, so I don't know if it's underrepresented in different fields. I think it's actually kind of exploding in a lot of fields, but I do think it's really important that philosophers and people within the humanities that are studying touch and have studied it for a long time to be a part of those collaborations in the sciences and other fields. Partly because we thought very deeply about the experience of touch and about the ethics of touch and um, about things like um, about trauma and, and the processes of healing from trauma. And I think it's really important for people with that kind of background and knowledge to be deeply involved in these other fields. And one thing that I found really rewarding about working in touch, like, is that like my other project, my first book is on Hegel and Marx, and it puts me in dialogue with other Hegelians, but with the project on touch, it really puts me in dialogue with so many different kinds of collaborators from like artists to this project with children, um, to yeah, yeah, different kinds of practical and academic projects. What is your book's contribution to the study of language? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would just return to what I've already touched upon a bit is about really thinking deeply about the relationship between language and touching from starting with experiences of intimacy and uh, of um, infancy. And I think infancy is so interesting. I mean, it's interesting to think about how language first becomes introduced to us through touching before we can actually speak back. 
And at least this is a claim I would make. I make even when we are speaking beings, we continually like learn and are taught lessons through, through the role of touch, through say a society that punishes us through touch and through corporeal punishment, for example, that there are different kinds of experiences say in intimacy, someone can withdraw their touch from me if they're not happy, for example. And I think there's a lot of ways that our given names are reinforced, not even our chosen names, but names that are projected on us, derogatory names or names that we might want to claim that they're really enforced and deepened through experiences of being touched or not being touched. And that's something that we explore pretty deeply. And I think it's one of our main arguments in the book. You alluded to science or technology in responding to a, a previous question asked. Mm. Can you say more about how your book advances the philosophy of science and technology? Mm. I'm wondering, there might not be so much directly about technology. Um, Mir Komel, his chapter, Touching Doubt on Haptolinguistics, this idea of haptolinguistics is also obviously about um, the relationship between touch and language. And um, Komel talks about, he tries to look for the smallest unit of touch within language. So within structural linguistics, you have the grapheme and the phoneme, which are the smallest units of the written word and the smallest unit of the spoken word within language and like a, like a symbol. Uh, a syllable, I'm sorry. And he thinks that there's this, he argues that there's this missing aspect, which is the smallest unit, unit of touch that's within, that's a necessary part of, of language and communication. And he calls this the HAP team. And I think the HAP team is such a beautiful contribution, such an important contribution to structural linguistics. And so this smallest unit of touch. And unlike the visual element in the the spoken element and the written element, the haptim is special because it always touches us back. So I think there's this language, there's this element in language that it's not just one directional of the communicator, the communicator trying to um, project a word, but in the sense that when we touch, we experience that sensation back. If you slightly touch someone on the shoulder when you say hello, that you feel the sensation of their sweater or something. And I've begun to apply this a little bit in some of my collaborations with engineers who work on haptic, haptic technology and developing it. Why, when we touch technology, for example, when you like touch your smartphone and it, you just feel that little bump back, why that element is really important and why it's really unsatisfying when that's not there. I'm, I'm curious about that. And it's interesting how like early smart technology actually covers over this, this element of touch that I think is structural within every touch. Like with every touch, you have that sensation back. But early technology, like just such like a smooth screen that you don't always have that responsiveness back. So um, I think that's something that's really being developed within, within technology. In your perspective, you, you alluded earlier on to bringing brought, having been brought up in a Christian religious uh, household and context. Um, how did your personal thinking about touch evolve during the course of your life? 
when you're when you were preparing this book, editing the essays in this book, thinking about the contributions to this book, to what degree are the perspectives on touch presented in this volume a continuity of mm. attitudes toward touch that you had experienced when you were, were younger before academics had entered your life? To what degree does this represent a challenge to ideas you were brought up with um, when you were younger? Can you mm. can you comment to the extent that you feel comfortable? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Um... It's interesting to me because I don't I don't um, explicitly write about those experiences within this book, but a lot of the invitations I got to give talks or collaborate ended up being with um, religious communities and also some some academic groups that were um, evangelical or ex-evangelicals and that were still exploring evangelical theology. And it's funny how like they we kind of find each other and almost like they can sense it. And um, yeah, I think as I might have alluded to before, I, I thought of evangelical culture as kind of like anti-sensual in a way. I used to think about it that way, just because there's this imperative not to touch, especially the focus on heterosexual friendships and relationships that um, this whole idea of like true love waits. And when I first experienced like, undergraduate experience with this there was a sort of like liberation and freedom and all I had all these kinds of new experiences that wouldn't have been permitted within that theological framework and that religious community I saw I saw that one kind of existence as super sensuous and the other as deprived of as sensuality but I think the further I get away from belonging to that kind of religion is that I, I do appreciate the, the sensuality and the affectivity that was such a big part of that experience. For, for example, in the absence of touching during the experience of worship, it was a very um, intensely affective experience where uh, we would sing together and close our eyes and have like communal emotions that we could express in a very outward way. And I find this to be something that's lacking or even totally absent outside of that. And so it might seem like there's lots of opportunities for, for dating and sexuality outside um, of the church. But I also think there's another kind of sensuality that's lacking that I, I even grieve and long for. And I think, um, I think in addition to this as within academia and developing my professional career, career, I experienced a lot of harassment and I saw how, how academia really protected people who were abusers. And it was a, it became a pretty, unfortunately a, a pretty common experience of har harassment within these institutional settings, not just for me, but of course, a lot of people. And as I was conducting this experience, this um, research and haptic skepticism, me too happened and it happened as, a, as a, cultural, a cultural global event. And it was interesting within that setting to see the, the impact of me too on my colleagues and, and what a panic it kind of inspired in people who I think had never questioned their, their touch before. And I found that 
um, yeah, a lot of my colleagues were panicking and they would pull me into their office and like in a panic question, like, do you think this thing I said or did could get me in trouble? And I think I was interested in that moment where somebody who had gotten away with a lot of things probably their entire career were suddenly worried about the consequences as if for the first time. And I, I know they weren't, they weren't asking like, oh, do you think I might've made that person uncomfortable? They're like, do you think I could get in trouble? Do you think this is gonna um, come back to me? And I think they were looking for some kind of moment of redemption that I was like, oh no, you're one of the good guys. Um, and that's just something I would withhold. Like we have this practice in skepticism of saying perhaps, perhaps. And I thought like that was like a moment where just like, I think it's okay to like, there to be a moment of uncertainty where you have to like reflect upon yourself. So there are ways that I thought of evangelicalism as very oppressive and hostile towards different bodies and different sexual orientations. Um, and I thought of, I thought turning to philosophy would be a, a experience of liberation, but I found a lot of ways that institutional setting reproduced a lot of that purity culture and um, a lot of the way it alienates certain kinds of bodies. So that really became the driving force of the ethical focus of this volume is thinking about actually like longing for that desire for the haptic dogmatist to have a moment of panic to question their own their own touching. How have Christian readers responded to the book, um, both within evangelical Christianity and within other evangelical and within other Christian traditions mm -hmm. or denominations, how have evangelical Christians perhaps responded differently to the book than Catholic Christians or Orthodox Christians or um, Christians of different uh, orientations? Yeah, I would be curious outside of an academic context. I've, um, I've held conferences on other uh, book release conferences at Villanova in an academic Catholic setting. And then I've um, recently presented this work at um, a school for systematic theology at Bockholm University with Rebecca Klein's project where there's uh, a few post or ex-evangelicals working in that project. And I think it really resonates with people who grew up in a kind of purity culture where maybe some of their experiences of touch later in life just like were not permitted within that theological framework. And I think that's like, um, yeah, navigating the, the discontinuity between one way of life and another way of life is, um, is disorienting itself, especially that you never find complete resolution between those two sides. So I think, I think it speaks most to people who've experienced a radical shift within their life, whether it's away from a religious upbringing or toward a new religious orientation. And I, I think it doesn't have to be religious, but mm -hmm. uh, but maybe within the context of the of our of Jewish studies, that that really brought that out. How does your book contribute to phenomenology? and contemporary trends in phenomenology? Mm. I think in one way, bringing phenomenology, 20th century phenomenology, back to what I see as roots in, in Pyrrhonism and in ancient phenomenology. And I think 20th century phenomenology 
tends to focus on sensation as a as a positive um, as a positive affect. So by positive, I mean a presence. Even though its dialogue with postmodernism is trying to overturn the the dominance of presence and phenomenology like coming from Husserl it tries to suspend our beliefs it begins from an epoche which means it begins by trying to suspend your belief and disbelief to describe sensation whereas I'm, I'm interested in ancient phenomenology ancient Pyrrhonism as a kind of ancient phenomenology in that it it doesn't begin by suspending your beliefs it begins in the thick of your beliefs and it doesn't ask you to suspend it it asks you to go deeper into them until you encounter a place where your own beliefs bring you into uh, a moment of contradiction. And I think that moment isn't just intellectual, but it's actually something we experience as a fully embodied being. It's, a, it's an affective and haptic experience in itself. So I'm trying to bring some of this to up into the forefront of contemporary phenomenology. And I think, I think it's really important in terms of phenomenology of touch because one of the trends I see in contemporary phenomenology of touch is the, the reduction of phenomenology of touch to its epistemological value. So like, not to pick on Richard Carney, but he has this new book on touching that came out and he talks about touch as, um, as an epistemic tool. Like touch, touch teaches us something, touch always teaches us something. And I agree with that, but well, he has this figure of the, the connoisseur of touch and the connoisseur of touch is somebody who knows all about different kinds of touching. They're an expert on touch. Part of the problem I have about this with this model is that the, epistem the epistemologist of touch always knows what they want from touch and that's, that's knowledge. And ahead of time, they always believe they're very confident in their ability to get what they want from touch, to get knowledge. And I think this kind of confidence comes from a kind of perspective on touch or an experience of touch that doesn't believe that it can be made vulnerable by touch itself. And I think it's important to recognize that for so many people, the, the relationship between touching involves so much risk and for everybody it involves that risk. And if you're too confident in this kind of one directional touch that touches in order to get something that it wants ahead of time, that it doesn't make itself vulnerable to the risk that it might put others at through its overconfident touching. And that's, that's something I feel very passionately about developing those moments of self-doubt within, within a phenomenology of touch. And especially to, to bring up the ethical value of, of questioning in, in relationships of intimacy, of relation, haptic relations of all kinds. How did the essays in your book contribute to the study of sex? What do they say about eros and eroticism? Can you elaborate on these themes? And also mm -hmm. since you teach in the Institute for the Study of Sexuality and Gender at Columbia University, how can the contributions to think about sex and eros and eroticism in your book mm -hmm. contribute to other fields? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think this project contributes to conversations around consent that usually when we think about consent, we th 
think about something that takes place before sex, so, or before any sexual activity and that it's through language. I think there's this fantasy that language, if we use enough words that we can clarify, it, words can rescue us from the ambiguities of touch relations. And I agree that, that this is such an important part of intimacy is developing um, a clear vocabulary that we can all use and becoming informed about how to make sure somebody else is interested in the same thing that you are in. Actually, not just how to know, but how to like why we ought to prioritize that, which is such a basic element that's missing, I think, in our culture. It's missing. It's something that's coming to coming to light and coming into focus. But I think beyond just a, a language or a discussion of consent that focuses on language, it's something that has to, con the idea of consent has to continue throughout touching itself, that every instance of touching is somehow also a question of touch itself. And I draw a lot on Levinas's idea of the caress to think about um, an extended ethics of consent. That's not just something that takes place before touching, but something that takes place during touching and that it, it's linguistic, but it goes beyond, beyond language. It's also haptic itself. And Levinas's idea of the consent or of the, of the caress is that in each moment of, of touching, it also withdraws its own expectations of what it wants from that. But it doesn't let its own desire, its specific form of desire overtake um, its own responsibility to, to hold open a space for what the other person might want and what not want. So there's a way of, even when you're coming into touch through the caress that you pull yourself back and you withhold your own expectations and desires to leave space for the other person's uncertainty and the other person's questioning in, in the midst of that experience. And I think this is a, a really important yeah, notion to to meditate on as consent, as something that's continually taking place both linguistically and non-linguistically through, through haptic sensation itself. And again, like returning to this, the importance of not being so overly confident in one's, um, in one's touching. And I don't see this, I think a lot of people think of this as like a barrier to intimacy, but I also like would argue that questioning your own touch, allowing yourself to be called question and allowing yourself to be made vulnerable by the uncertainty of your own touching is um, actually heightened, heightens the erotic experience of, of sexuality. So I think it has to do with, with pleasure and with ethics. And I see those two things as so tightly interwoven that they're not, that they're not against each other, that one, having a deeper ethical relationship to sex uh, allows intimacy and sexuality to be experienced by more kinds of people in a greater variety of ways. I think when I was working on this project, even some of my own contributors, at least like one of them, I think like Robert Fowler in his, in his chapter, he's, you can see that he's a little bit skeptical about the Me Too movement itself. There's definitely that tension within our research group uh, where he, he really saw the Me Too movement as anti-sex. And that's why in my own introduction, I argue like 
explicitly against this that for me I see it as an ethics of intimacy as for the sake of of sexuality and have and sensuality and again to bring this back to eros and Audre Lorde's understanding of eros as a self-relation by by creating an environment where more kinds of sexual experiences and sensual experiences are possible it creates like a richer relationship with oneself and it's about overcoming those experiences of of self-alienation that occur when we grow up in an environment that that normalizes harassment so what 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 i thought was interesting in your reply to the previous question was your reference to levinas and his perspective on caress and if you don't mind me asking um you alluded to your your Christian upbringing. And I was curious um, if you could perhaps say more about Levinas in the sense that Levinas is writing from very much a Jewish religious perspective. I mean, uh, in addition to his, you know, to, 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 to totality and infinity, he's also written, you know, essays on the Talmud. He's coming from a, to a certain degree, from a Jewish religious tradition in the way that he thinks about many topics and when you alluded to his perspective on caress, I was curious what it may have meant for you to have encountered Levinas's ideas on caress in light of being brought up in a Christian religious environment that you evolved away from as you matured. And I was curious what it was like thinking about Levinas's perspective perspective from a Jewish tradition in light of the Christian tradition mm. from which you were brought up. Do you feel comfortable sharing more? Yeah, and I don't know if I have a full answer to that. It's such a great thing to meditate on though. Um, I think I think like um, I'm so grateful that I get to pursue theological questions outside of a, a strict, a strict framework because it's mm-hmm. allowed me to come to it allows me to fantasize and meditate on different notions of god that aren't separate from materiality and sensuality but are actually found within that material sensuous experience itself and um i i, I in evangelicalism too of course like sex between a husband and a wife is something that's holy that's an act of worship but there's also an asymmetrical relationship there where the husband is in the position of Christ and the wife is in the position of the church. So it's always kind of through these like very asymmetrical confined relationships. I find that again, in, in, in many Jewish circles, academic or otherwise that you still, there is, there is that asymmetricality and you find it in Levinas's writing on the caress too, of the, cause it's always this between a he and a she in a kind of way where you often have the male caresser in the feminine flesh. Um, so although I do, I do find like rich explorations of, of God and divinity within some Jewish philosophers that really focus on touch. Um, I also find a, a repetition of some of those gender dynamics that I found so alienating within evangelicalism. And I think Irigaray's response to Levinas and in her depiction of the caress, she she takes up this he she figures that and 
but I think she's also doing something kind of disruptive within the repetition of his characters. And I would look for even a further moment of disruption within the caress where the caress doesn't belong, doesn't take place just between um, a man and a woman within these, because, because even as Levinas is imagining withdrawing your expectations during intimacy, he's also projecting some of his own fantasies and desires about, about what sex is. And Irigaray talks about this moment of, she says the caress, there's a moment of the caress that begins before the caress. And for her, it's this moment that's totally undetermined by specific relations or figures. And it has to do with, I think our own relationship to touching that takes place, that takes place before touching and during touching, but it's something that disrupts those um, conventional roles, maybe. What contribution can your book make to other fields in the humanities and other fields in social sciences? What can the study of touch contribute to the study of history, to the study of literature, to the study of music, to the study of politics, to the study of ethics, to the study of international relations, to the study of sociology? Can you share any thoughts you might have? Yeah, it's such a big question. I think that a lot of those fields are already like exploring the significance of touch and some of them, it might not be so obvious. Um, the, the contributors of this volume, a lot of us are Hegelians. So we have that love of history and thinking about history's own relationship to itself, which is what you get out of Hegel. How does, like, um, it seems a little bit of like a riddle, but like one of Hegel's questions is how does history grasp itself as history? And sometimes this word begriff is translated as understand, but we take, Begriff to really also have this material side of how does it really touch itself in its historicity? How does any political moment grasp itself um, as, as a moment in history and uh, um, grasp its inheritance? I think on a political level, one thing that a lot of these authors, including myself, are interested in, how does a historical moment grasp itself by its own political contradictions, because we would argue, and I, and I would argue that um, a political stage has to really feel on the level of embodiment, on the level of the body, its own tensions in order for there to be something like social change, that those, in, in other words, maybe just to bring it down to earth, like the individuals within a community within a political body have to feel the tension of the political contradictions within their society in order for us to be moved to really recreate those political structures. Uh, so that's that's one aspect. I don't know, there's so many. Um, I think that this book really touches upon the intersections of a lot of these disciplines where you'll, you'll see elements of 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 music, of art, of of um, political critique, of um, yeah, there's it, it has a wide reach. How do the essays in your book advance our understanding of love? I have to say that in a funny way, in a funny way, this question kind of stumps me a bit. Why is it easier to think about immediately? Easier to think about desire and um, than love. I think ethics is about 
the desire for a loving community and the desire for a different kind of community than the ones we currently have. In some ways, whenever, at least this is my approach to ethics, is that it's trying to envision a world that's different than the one we currently live in. And in some ways it's a request to be treated differently. And it's a request to, um, to enter into relationships that are caring and loving and respectful. And it's, it's so basic at the end, it's dressed up in such fancy arguments, but I think in the end, what's underneath it all is, um, um, yeah, a, a request for a, a more caring and loving environment where more kinds of experiences, a richer variety of experiences are possible because when you live in an environment where that kind of care isn't available, it's up to individuals who have already been hurt to keep the world at a distance. So I talk about this expression of um, keeping the other at an arm's length. And there are people who have to go through the world automatically assuming that safety and care is not, is, is not a guarantee at all. In fact, it's like um, maybe, maybe even a rarity for some people. And I think I would want to envision like ethics to me is envisioning a world where those individuals who are already vulnerable don't have to work so hard to keep harm away um, as a default that they could have, that they could be in a position to me, um, the fantasy of living in a world that's safe and caring, that's more ethical, that's more ethically in tuned, um, attuned would be to give to give more people that moment of haptic skepticism where you can actually question what it is that you want from touch or whether you want to touch or not to touch. And I think that moment of questioning is actually like has something to do with ontology, our relationship to being in our own being. And when you live in a world where you have to be guarded, it takes away someone's own ability or their own, that privilege of of questioning, of questioning, of wondering if you wanna do something or not do something because you have to automatically begin from a position of no in order to keep that safe distance from other people. But I, I thank you for introducing that, that word love as something to meditate on. A number of essays in the volume make reference to the New Testament, the story of Mary Magdalene and the story of Thomas. Yeah. What was it like for you revisiting the New Testament as a literal and figurative adult mm. in comparison and contrast to the way you had approached it as a child. Um, yeah. What did you learn about the New Testament in the process of developing this book that you hadn't realized before? How much of your inner child came out in preparing this book? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. Um, yeah, I think I think it's funny because moving from religion to philosophy, maybe that to me felt like a, a growing a coming of age experience where I left my religion behind and I came into something that felt more more open, more comprehensive, even like less naive or something. And but actually, I within my philosophy, I remain so um, so engaged with religion and theological discourses still. And I, I've done that throughout my PhD and postdocs. And it's been a way to 
be the philosopher I am now, but to dwell with the, the younger versions of myself in those moments of faith, instead of feeling such tension between it, or not to be hostile towards those, those tensions. I think someone like Augustine, who I love so much, like he suffers so much because he's ashamed of his younger self and the beliefs and the actions of his younger self. And I think there's a way to be in, in deep dialogue with those younger versions of yourself. And you know, Derrida has this quote, at least I think he does, but I haven't been able to find it where I've been attributing it to him, where he says, when I pray, I'm so many ages at once. And his point is like, even as a philosopher who represents like an atheist point of view, he's also that younger self who was, um, who didn't have that tension with his tradition. And I think that that's one of the pleasures of revisiting these, these stories from the Bible and from so many different kinds of theological and philosophical and even put put all of the academics aside, just being able to read it as if for the first time again and let it strike me, let it touch me in new ways that it wasn't able to before. And like, um, yeah, that's something I'm so drawn to. And I, I've especially been meditating just over the last few months and some of my writing on the figure of Eve, the figure of Mary Magdalene. Uh, I think that's like where we all went in this, volume so many authors touch upon that where the way the way um I read Mary Magdalene is that there's something about her presence there that's already over touching when Jesus says don't touch me he there's a kind of vulnerability there or even insecurity that just her presence because she doesn't lunge towards him in some of the versions she's just present and that's already too much so that was a theme that we were interested in this idea that some people, some people's presence is already um, a contamination because it's already the, the threat that they're, that they exist is already, already feels like a contamination. And that's, that's one thing we got out of our meditation on Mary Magdalene is that figure of the, of the untouchable and the person who's already like, just their existence is a too much of touch. And it brings me back to like the figure of Eve and why Eve coming into touch with herself or coming into knowledge, grasping her, her own body in its nudity and in its goodness, like was a threat to the, even to God. And I think that moment's repeated in the, in the figure of Mary Magdalene in that moment. Thank you for sharing that. That's a brilliant insight. Um, how do you personally identify with Eve and Mary Magdalene as literary characters, as a philosopher and as a academic and as a human being what do those two figures mean to you as a human being as an academic as a philosopher mm, that's a lot of layers um yeah to me it's um and maybe it is the influence of re reading Audre Lorde and some of the insights I've come through her work about Eros as a kind of um as the excitement of coming into our own, um, our our own um, emotions that we can't even identify yet, that are the more the intensity of our being, that it, it represents, um, I don't know, like a rekindled relationship to oneself, to one's own sensuality that maybe is repressed by different environments. From in my own experience, like a religious environment, but then how that's 
that same kind of repression is reproduced in, say, an academic environment. Um, even even two environments that see each other that see themselves as so opposed can uphold the same kinds of destructive values. And I think there's something about coming into touch with oneself and recovering one's own sensuality, even may, even perhaps after having experiences of violation or neglect or repression, that is to me is ultimately a political act. And, and I think it is terrifying to reclaim that power. And like, we see that in the backlash against me too, that it's scary when people reclaim their own sensuality because that's precisely what's been taken away from them. So, so I do find that, um, obviously that's influencing how I'm reading those moments too. Um, it's something I want to tease out of those moments. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, um, can you comment on what you're working on now as a current and subsequent research project? How does this project uh, relate to your current thinking? Um, would you be kind enough to share with us how you grew from this project that you've completed into the work that you're doing now? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's interesting this project on haptic skepticism took off and really took shape in response to the Me Too movement and which which brought us into a really ethical direction in, in response to what was happening on a global front, but also just within our own institutional settings where we were conducting the research. And when when this volume came to a close, or actually we were still like working on the final stages of publication when the pandemic occurred and it seemed like touch was really central to that crisis too. It was another shared global crisis of touch again on a, on a totally different register. And this brought our, or my own reflections on haptic skepticism towards thinking about like experiences of intense isolation when we're totally deprived of touch or our usual rituals of gathering together with our family and friends were disrupted or taken away from us. Or um, also I was thinking about how experiences like different dating cultures and hookup cultures were disrupted or like were disrupted by this, um, this threat that we initially really saw as beneath our fingertips. Like, um, and now of course there's, there's other um, epidemics and pandemics to be focused on that have brought up, that have brought up the question the threat of touch in new ways too and um, it was um, I don't want to say interesting it was disturbing to see how many people resisted the the invitation to adjust their their rituals of um, of gathering together and touching in response to something like a crisis that demanded everyone's, everyone's, everyone to adjust their their practices. I thought that was like a new face of haptic skepticism, of haptic dogmatism showing itself again, where people really clung to their their right to touch and to come into touch in the way they were used to. And one of the focuses of my current research is just a continuation of, of, of questioning again, what happens when instead of clinging to what we're used to, our usual forms of comfort or, or intimacy or pleasure, if we let go of those and 
and allow our, even the shape of our own desire to be momentarily formless. Like sometimes in, in moments of global crisis or of personal crisis, like your future looks blank and you don't know, you can't even imagine it. And it, it, it feels like the experience, like that kind of isolation and alienation can feel like the experience of like a, the death of desire. But I, I would also wonder how in those moments of shapelessness and of, of intense self-doubt, how this, this very shape of Eros, our own desire is taking new forms. And for me, it's like haptic skepticism in a moment like this is an invitation for us to imagine radically new kinds of social configurations of relationships of intimacy that we don't really have a model for yet. And I think that but that's what's demanded for there to be serious social change um, at this moment. It's been an absolute delight to be in conversation with you today. Thank you for the privilege of this conversation. And thank you for everything I learned and gleaned from this book. I would be humbled to recommend it to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. This conversation has been really challenging and um, it's really expanded my own thinking in ways that um, has been such a pleasure. So. So thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Rachel Almiller. She is a lecturer in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She also teaches for the Institute for the Study of Sexuality and Gender at Columbia University. Today, we've been discussing her new book, which she has edited, a Touch of Doubt on Haptic Skepticism, published by De Gruyter, 2021. Thank you wholeheartedly.